Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg. On this week's show, I am joined by Mark Ein, who is the owner of the City Open Tennis Tournament on the ATP and WTA Tours, which is held annually in Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C. It's a tournament's been at the same venue for over 50 years. It's a big standing tradition in the summer tennis calendar in the United States, and it's also potentially the next tennis tournament on the calendar, uh, with a bunch of the tournaments before it having all been canceled. It's only April, but already we know that there will be no European clay court season, at least pre-Wimbledon, and then all the grass court season is gone. So Washington suddenly stands in April as the next sort of big landmark on the tennis horizon, with it being the first you know, big combined ATP WTA tournament still on the schedule currently. So with that in mind, we talked to Mark about what it's been like for this while, this uncertainty, different contingencies that are being talked about in the tennis world. And hopefully you'll find this conversation illuminating in these strange, murky times. Here's Mark. Very happy to be joined on the show today by Mark Ein, who is the owner of the City Open, the Washington Tennis Tournament, Washington Summer Tennis Tradition, I believe is your slogan, ATP and WTA Tours, the annual stop every late July, early August. Although this year, obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty in the air. So, Mark, thank you very much for being on here and uh, chatting in this in this weird moment we're having. Appreciate it. Yeah, always, always great to chat. And uh, and Ben, that's more than a slogan. It 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 is. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. No, it's true. It is Washington Summer Tennis Tradition. One of the first times I went to the City Open, which was then the Leg Mason Tennis Classic back in the nineties, I won a actually won a radio contest for tickets for some. I forget what the trivia question was, but some trivia question, and they they asked me which days I wanted tickets for which session for, and they gave me like all all possible sessions. And it, I picked the final, and then Michael Chang won it that year. I still remember that. So I remember that one. Yeah. I, and I and I started uh, my involvement with the tournament as a ball kid when I was twelve oh, wow. years old. So uh, for uh, Eddie Dibbs and Harold Solomon, who gave all short guys like myself a, a, a shot, a thought that they might actually be on the court someday, but that didn't happen. To turn this into an Eddie Dibbs podcast briefly, I believe that <laughs> I believe that he was the one who came up with the term bagel. I think that's sort of his lasting. Legacy. Well, they were they were the Bagel Brothers. Yeah, Eddie Dibbs and Harold Sign. Harold was from Silver Spring, Maryland, down the street. So, uh, yeah, those were great days. Those were great days. So you have owned the tournament since last year. Uh, the tournament was in danger of moving out of DC, and when it was up for sale, and you bought it and kept it in DC, which I and many others are grateful for. Um, I'm just curious how how was your first uh, year owning a tournament? What was that first experience like? Because you've been in tennis for a long time and other other sorts of roles. What was that experience like? And I guess looking forward a little bit, what kind of stuff were you already looking forward to for uh, for 2020? Yeah, I mean it was it was fantastic. You know, we really had it was a great 50 year old event. It's the fifth biggest tournament in the United States. One of only it's the only ATP 500 in the United States and one of only five combined events. And, uh, you know, it was a really terrific event, but we had this vision for how we could take it to a two totally new level. And so even though we got it, we literally only got control of it in March, I think. So it was a real sprint to get it ready. You know, I think we, we did, a, we really, I, I think, revolutionized the event, complete change in the site, the food and beverage, the player experience, everything. We really wanted to touch every single component of the event, our 
motto was that we would never say we're doing something because that's the way it was done in the past. We were going to try to think how to do things differently. And, you know, the results were incredible. We broke every record the tournament's ever had, everything, shattered them. Um, and what was really great was that when we started the week, we, it looked good, but it didn't look like it was going to break records. And then as people came to the site and went to the new food area and tried the food by people like Jose Andres and mm -hmm. people locally, we had the best ice cream place, Gelat, the best coffee place, the best burger place. Moe came and did stuff. Uh, through word of mouth, it just people started coming and coming and we ended up selling out seven of the 11 sessions. And I think what it just showed to me was that tennis, as we know from events like Indian Wells and the U.S. Open and a, a lot of events, when it's done well at a high level, people respond. Tennis fans come and they love it. But then other people come. And I think that was really rewarding to just see this great reaction. And uh, our team worked really hard. And so it was really gratifying. And then, yeah, we didn't, I mean, we, we were, we, we are planning on building on last year. We have a whole set of new food and beverage partners, some new seating areas, a whole bunch of stuff that we were about to launch the campaign to talk to people about in Indian Wells. And obviously that was the first event to be canceled. And we also put a pause on our marketing effort. It just seems like in, in the current state of the world, that's not the most important thing. But yeah. whenever we pick it up, hopefully this year or whenever it is, we're going to build on last year and just keep building and growing. And uh, we have really high, really high goals for it. That's sort of the moment I think that everybody in tennis will point to is sort of when things got real in the coronavirus situation for tennis as India Wells getting canceled, uh, which just happened very shortly before that tournament was supposed to start. It was the day before Quali started. What was your sort of reaction to that news? And I guess, had you had, had it already been in your radar from, from a City Open perspective before then? Or was that really the sort of the, the wake-up call moment? I think that was kind of... I mean, there it's a series of, you know, a series of things happen that heighten your sensitivity to it. Um, um, but that was maybe the catalyst to saying, oh, wow, this is different. In fact, as soon as it happened, I texted one of my best friends who happens to own an NBA team, and I sent him a note, and I said, this isn't just big for tennis. This is big for all of sports. Because, you know, at that point, no one had canceled any. It wasn't just the first tennis event. It was the first major sporting event to be yeah. canceled. And, yeah, and here we are today. So, yeah, that whole time. And, and you know, Indian Wells really is a mecca for everyone in the tennis world. The whole, you know, the, the almost the global tennis community flocks there every year. And it's almost 500,000 people. It's almost as big as the French Open or close to as big. Yeah. So for some event of that size and scale gets canceled, it's, uh, it opened a lot of people's eyes up to the issue we're dealing with. What, what, yeah, what, once you're, I guess, once you're that sort of alert happens, and then I guess, obviously, all the tournaments that are immediately after that are immediately on standby, I guess, like Miami and Charleston, Houston. But for you, what, what was your sort of thought process on how uh, watching the sort of ripples of this work their way through the calendar? You know, it's so interesting, Ben. I mean, that was not even, I guess it was just about a month ago. And you just, today we know so much more. Because uh, we're all quasi obsessed with every little detail of this. If, if you yeah. can put yourself back to where we were a month ago, we had no idea about tests and vaccines and treatments and social distancing. And I, I don't think that at the time we necessarily at all thought, oh, this is going to endanger the prospects of hosting the city open. I mean, obviously, it enters your mind, but it just was totally unknown what we were dealing with a month ago. And obviously, we just all know so much more today. But back then, we thought maybe it's a possibility, but we definitely didn't 
think that it was a foregone conclusion. Yeah. So what has this last month been like for you? What what has it been like sort of from this event? Obviously, everyone's lives, period. I mean, you're staying indoors like everybody else, I'm sure. But what is your, just from the from the tennis city open, you know, vantage point, what has it been like for this? What have you, yeah. been, what have you been doing the last so, month or so? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the, the first thing that I focused on was just making sure my family is safe and healthy and that we were set up in a way so that everyone in the family would be okay. So that was the first thing. And then, frankly, Ben, the, the uh, next thing I had to focus on is that we have, you know, we own or own a lot of a bunch of companies. And I really wanted to make sure that, and, and it was clear that this was going to be a rough economic time. And so I wanted to make sure the people who work in those companies uh, we're in as good shape as possible. And I'm I'm really proud that as of today, we haven't had zero layoffs, furloughs, or salary reductions just because we've been laser focused on figuring out how to, they were all in pretty good shape and had resources, but also just really protecting the people who work in those companies was my next priority. So even though I'm not going to the office, I'm working, <laughs> I, I think I work pretty hard and I'm working harder now. Uh, than ever just trying to do that. And then, you know, and then there is a lot of work around planning for the city open and it's different because it's not in front of us. Obviously I want to make sure the team that works on it is safe. So we were very early in having people work from home and now we're just scenario planning, Ben. It's, um, you know, there's really four scenarios. One is the event goes off as usual. Mm -hmm. Uh, two is, is that it goes off without fans, which is a topic of a lot of conversation and a lot of sports. Uh, three is a hybrid where it goes off, but there's some fans. And then four is obviously it's canceled. And, uh, you know, we're doing everything we can to problem solve and be creative to find a way that we can do it somehow. But it only is going to happen if we can assure that it's safe for people. Um, and so just a huge amount of work going into trying to figure that out. Let's go through each of those four scenarios you laid out if we can. So th the first yeah. one would be normal tournament like everyone would have expected in 2020 yeah and i guess you're sort of interesting part of the reason i wanted to have you on this week and what you know, want to talk to a tournament owner during this whole stretch for a while but you're sort of the next ones up in terms of the, yeah. you're the next big combined tournament who has to make who's gonna is in the, in the timeline of things uh after wimbledon has already announced his cancellation so i mean i'm just curious like we don't know when the part of the frustrating or scary part of coronavirus is we just don't know what the finish line really where it is or what what it looks like necessarily and so what do you sort of measure in terms of because as of now the tournament's still on it's still on the calendar but how do you measure just in terms of business as normal tournament is that still possible is that could it be possible could this all are you thinking this could all be over quote unquote by july which is three months from now i mean maybe but I mean, it's a long time. So, and a lot can happen. Yeah. You know, it really is unknowable and it's really somewhat out of all of our control. And again, I'm looking at this every day from a variety of different businesses. One of our companies takes people on small ships to Arctic and Galapagos, like the world's most interesting places uh, mm -hmm. on small ships. So we're trying to think right now we can't take anyone anywhere. And, you know, we got a lot of employees and a lot of guests who want to go place. We're trying to think about it. Then we have the building security company. We're trying to think about how to get people back to work. And to some extent, there's common, there's, there's things in common that help us problem solve amongst the portfolio. I would say that, um, yeah, I, I am pretty sure that we will be back, that 
we're not going to be in lockdown in August. I don't think that that's very likely for a lot of reasons. Uh, if you look at the trajectory of where we are, if you look at how they've managed it in other countries, um, and also to me, it really the single most important thing is testing. Yeah. If you can, depending how quick you can have fast, accurate, inexpensive testing is the entire determinant. So as we think about the office or the buildings that we protect for our security company, if you could have a test before someone enters the building, you could know who's safe and who's not. And 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 that kind of test for other diseases is doable. My dad happens to be a doctor and there's tests they can do in the office and tell you in five minutes. At some point, that'll be the case here. Whether that happens and is available by August, we don't know. Um, and so that's one of the big things is, is the testing. Um, you know, as we sit here today, it is not impossible. It is a little hard to imagine that we're going to have 7,700 people in the stadium in three months, yeah. you know? Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't possibly a way that you could have some amount less than that who are social, who are distant and using proper precautions. That's possible. Yeah. Let's, but, let's, go, let's go to that scenario know. next, I guess, which yeah. is, 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 which is the one where you just have people come to the, and buy tickets to the tournament, but way, way fewer, like 10% maybe of your original capacity. You were, I think something in that ball ballpark is where you were sort of thinking about like something under a thousand of your 75 capacity. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know what that would be and what the measures would be. And there's a lot of other sports who are going to figure it out before us. I mean, don't forget we're in the middle of baseball season, so they're going to figure this out. Yeah. But yeah, assume it's some amount meaningfully less than a packed stadium. Yeah. I mean, there's still a lot you need to do to make sure that it's safe and that's why people are working around the clock trying to figure it out because look, at the end of the day, tennis doesn't matter compared to people's health and safety. And so at the end of the day, if there's not a way to keep people safe and healthy, then we'll just do it next year. Yeah. But I also think two things that are important. First of all, I think that people have a real desire to get back to some level of normalcy. They want to get outside. They want to be around other people. Um, they want to be entertained. Um, and they, you know, they don't want to be cooped up in their house. It's funny, Ben, there are people who say, oh, this is going to change everything. This is like the future of work. And I, I don't really know a single person who's saying this is the way I want to live the rest of my life, (laughs) the way we're all living at the moment. So I think that's important. And then, and then there are, again, health and safety is the number one priority, but there is also an economic consideration that the government can't prop up the entire economy for the rest of the year, literally just doesn't have enough money. So at some point, collectively, we have to figure out how to enable some things to happen in a safe way. Yeah. And so there's not, and there's not a silver bullet besides a quick test would be the easiest. Short of that, then you have to cobble together a bunch of other uh, things that would make it safe. Yeah. And a vaccine, I'm sure, would go a long way too, obviously. Well, vaccine is the answer and that'll happen, but that's not coming before August. Right. um, This year. So then the, then the third scenario is playing with no, no fans in attendance. And I'm curious, that's the one thing I've been curious about with tennis is how, how the sort of, if the math makes sense on that for tournaments, if tournaments are making enough money through other means to, you know, cover their expenditures. And, you know, I get, we were talking before the show, but you were saying there are also way fewer expenses if you don't have fans on site, you don't have to build as much stuff. You don't have to do as many site improvements and things like that. So what, what, what do you look at in that scenario, which is a very, different one than we've ever had in, in the pro sport. Yeah. And so, um, first of all, you look at other sports and, you know, you can read that baseball and basketball and hockey are all thinking about, is there something they can do 
with no fans that lets them still have games. Tennis is different in that um, TV makes up a lower percentage of the revenue yeah, and tickets. And then hospitality oriented sponsorship makes up a higher percentage. So, you know, in other sports, the visibility on TV is a bigger percentage of the sponsorship than we have. We have a little bit of that, but a lot of the sponsorship comes from people entertaining on site. So can you give an example of that for people who wouldn't know like what hospitality sponsorship looks like in, in practice? Yeah. So when, so when people sponsor tennis, they, they like having their signs around the court or around the grounds but what they also want is they want the ability to take their clients or employees to the site and host them during the week, um, have dinners, have guests. You know, maybe they'll have players come by and greet them and create special experiences. So there's a big amount of tennis sponsorship that is centered around, you might say, business entertainment or hospitality or even locally, sometimes it's community-oriented groups who come together and buy big blocks of tickets or something. Um, in others, there is a category of sponsorship that exists in tennis for sure. And in other sports, where people just want the name of their company on TV to a global audience. And that has a real value. That is a real value in the world. And there is some of that in tennis. It's just somewhat of a lower percentage of our sponsorship revenues than in other sports. So so it's a little bit more of a challenge in tennis to figure out how to make it work. So the first thing we did starting a couple weeks ago, just looking at this was say, well, let's, as you said, there is somewhat less expense if you had no fans, because we, we build a lot of structures to, to create a great experience for the fans. Yeah. But we ran the numbers and said, if you have no ticket revenues and just assume zero sponsorship, which you wouldn't have for sure, just as a starting point and the lower expenses, it doesn't work and that doesn't work. But you're in a place where it's not impossible to imagine that you could make it work. You'd, you know, there definitely will be some of our sponsors who would like the visibility of it on a global TV audience that probably would have a huge, huge, huge audience since there hasn't been live tennis in a long time. You're going to have the most unbelievable player fields because everyone's going to want to play because they haven't been making money or playing. Yeah. Um, and so you'll get some sponsorship. And then, you know, and then there may be other concessions other people make to enable it to happen. Frankly, I wouldn't care if we don't make money. I don't care if we don't make money. We just we wouldn't want to lose a lot of money doing it. So if we could collectively all problem solve on how to do it, and that was what the tennis community wanted to do, we'd be happy to host that. Yeah, um, We're not there yet, and we're working on it, and no one's even made the determination that you can't have fans yet, but we're, we're, we're examining it as a possibility. What would it be like, I guess, because like I said, with the way the calendar is ticking off and the events are stopping, there's a real possibility that City Open, if it does go ahead, which again is an if yeah. still, would be the first tournament back from this. And so what would that what would that be like to be the first back from a sort of the risks <laughs> of that and the rewards of that? Because I mean, you know, you'd be taking a, a chance, but also, like you said, a lot of players, I mean, would be yeah. very eager to, to play. And, it, you know, you could get a without trying too hard, I think you'd get the best tournament in the tournament, the best field in the tournament's history pretty easily. Yeah, I mean, we, we fortunately have had great fields <laughs> through the history. And last year, we had a fantastic field. But this but um, it is also unique that this year, because originally we were the second week of the Olympics, we were not the same week as Olympics tennis, but the second week we were the only men's events scheduled in the world. Um, and then it's us and San Jose on the women's side. So it is right. It's the only men's event in the world. And 
Um, and so, yeah, I think we would have an amazing player field for sure. We will, if it can happen in any of those forms and, uh, and that would be tremendously exciting if that, if that could happen, obviously as the first event back, you're going to be the Guinea pig. And hopefully, you know, again, we wouldn't do it unless we, everyone collectively knew we could keep people safe, but we're going to be the ones kind of learning all the lessons. And there is, you know, Newport would actually come first, I think, after Wimbledon. And then there's Atlanta, but we are the first big combined event after uh, in the world. I guess, and the other thing in terms of just whether or not the tournament happens at all, the fourth scenario where it doesn't happen, I mean, this is also not completely within your hands. I mean, there are several different groups, whether it's ATP and WTA, whether it's uh, the DC government, with the federal government, I guess. Uh, the U.S. I don't know. I don't know if you if U.S. Open canceled, that would would that be the end of your of consideration? Do you think, or what would what the sort of would, how, how does that play out? Well, yeah, I think if the U.S. Open canceled, it would be pretty analogous to Wimbledon canceling and then the grass court season being canceled. Yeah, you know, um, if the the cornerstone event that it all leads up to decides not to play. Um, then it makes it hard for it makes it hard for people to decide to come to the players to come to the United States and go through it all if that's not there. Um, you know, the U.S. Open has a, over a month or a month before our tournament in there, so they have more time. And I know how seriously they're taking it, and I know for them, health and safety is the number one thing. Um, you know, and they will only decide it based upon that. It is an interesting thing that. You know, the virtual, the whole USTA budget, which really provides the funding for a huge amount of tennis in America, comes from the U.S. Open. So um, let's hope for everyone who loves the sport that there is a way they can play the U.S. Open because because that would be the best thing for the sport, for yeah. sure. Just from, from that business perspective, I mean, what would it mean for a tournament, not just your tournament, but I don't know, you're, I'm sure you're in contact with other directors also, but to, to, to miss a year, like how many tournaments do you think can sort of can take this punch? I mean, we, we obviously there's been a lot of talk about Wimbledon having this pandemic insurance, which seems pretty rare. I can't, I haven't heard of any other tournament who has this contingency yet. Do you think everyone will be able to be resilient or do you think there'll be tournaments who might, you know, take a, not be able to come back in 2021 if they miss 2020? So, so that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, and it doesn't just pertain to tennis. It really cuts across all sports. So, yeah. you know, what happens when you go through a tough economic time, whether it was the 2009-11 time or whether it was 07-08, is there are a number of people who own sports properties, which the nature of them is they're quite expensive, but they also don't generate a cash flow. So they tend to be owned by people who you know, think that there's an asset value who are passionate about the sport like I am, but their return is not a normal economic one where it makes money. And oftentimes the investment is funded by a business that someone else owns. And what you found in sports during all bad economic times is that oftentimes people say, oh, I can't afford that sports event that or team or whatever it is. And in fact, Already this week, well, this week, over the last week, I've already had two calls for people who want to get out of major sports teams. They have an interest in them, but they're now looking to get liquidity to fund their other businesses. And that's what always happens. I actually looked in basketball the last time this happened, and like a third of the NBA teams were for sale hmm. back in that time frame. Not because the NBA, I mean, the NBA was actually going through a hard time. It was before the new media deal and the collective bargaining agreement. 
but it was also people who owned the teams, their core businesses were suffering. Yeah. And so they couldn't subsidize them. And so I'm sure that phenomenon is also going to happen in tennis, that there's people who own these things where the business that they, their main business is going to suffer and they're not going to be able to do this anymore. I, I don't think it's a huge amount and I'm not sure it's any of the big events. I think most of the big events are in really safe hands. Um, so I think it'll be generally fine, but I'm sure there'll be cases where that, where that is the case in tennis. The French Open's the one I've been thinking of most from that, just because of how they had this massive renovation project that was yeah. due to be completed. And they had to be, I would think they were kind of already in the red a bit from that and was ready to make it back in 2020. And if they don't get to play in 2020, and that's part of why, and they were so aggressive with their gambit to move to the fall is because they were maybe in a little bit, obviously compared Wimbledon with the pandemic insurance, I think French Open felt more up against it in several ways. Probably. Yeah, I have no firsthand knowledge. I read that too. And look, credit to Wimbledon for, <laughs> I mean, they're just really smart and good at what they do um, for having that much foresight. Cause yeah, I don't think anyone else uh, managed to have that. Um, but, you know, look, there also is a time at which, you know, you would think that maybe the French government, I mean, the, the French Open is such an iconic, uh, important event for that country and that city that if they needed assistance, that they probably would get. I, I don't know. Yeah. But um, but short of that, I think most of the events are in fine hands. And again, I think what will short of that example, what would make things shaky is actually less because not many events in tennis make a ton of money. It's less that. Um, and you're not going to lose a huge amount if you don't play. It's more do people do the other businesses that people have that let them own their tennis event yeah. uh, suffer. And that's the reason. Yeah, because tennis, I guess, for a lot of people's portfolios can be kind of a loss leader. I guess they they subsidize. Yeah, or a break even or whatever it is. But yeah, yeah, exactly. So that would be the reason. I guess last sort of thing. Who have you who have you been um, talking to through all this? Like, obviously, this is an uncertain water to everybody. No one, almost no one, was alive a hundred years ago when the, uh, or certainly alive and conscious a hundred years ago when the last pandemic of this scale happened with the influenza what would what what who have you been talking to either just comparing notes for other tournaments or with the tours themselves or usta i mean who, who do you or sponsors or i don't know whoever else who, who do you who are you who are you who are you listening to in, in this time of, of uncertainty yeah i mean all frankly all of the above you know because yeah. information and ideas is what we're all we're just you know just voracious in our thirst for knowledge and ideas and information. So again, because I've got a portfolio of things talking to people from first thing in the morning until late at night, even though, you know, I'm, I'm basically sitting in my home office working as hard and as many hours as, as when I'm, I'm in the office or on the road, just talking to all kinds of people. I will say that um, I, I think one of the silver linings for really globally from this may be that we're going to, in the end, solve this um, together across countries and, you know, uh, and amongst groups that usually don't collaborate. And so, um, and so the hope is that the silver lining here is that, um, you know, we realize that the way to solve problems is for us all to come together and work together. And that's already happening in tennis. Like you see more collaboration, I think, between the ATP and WTA and, the governing bodies probably than than virtually ever before, and I think that's been wonderful. Um, we talk, we have regular calls with both the ATP and the WTA and the USTA and our city 
Um, we even collectively did have a call with the White House who reached out for um, a small m number of people in the tennis industry wanting to just understand how we were thinking about it, recognizing that it is one of the first big sports that could come back. Um, and so they're interested as well in trying to help all sports come back. And then, you know, other business colleagues who are trying to think through how they can um, get their businesses back and back running. Yeah. That's actually, you mentioned that's one of the things that's been most striking to me in this weird time is that I've never gotten so many joint ATP WTA statements in my life. I mean, the, the sort of the cooperation that, that most of the bodies have had, and obviously there was a little friction with the French Open moving, but for the most part, people are coming together and it's almost seem and people wonder now with, if this moment of pause, especially if it is, let's say the whole rest of the year that doesn't get played, we don't know if it can be sort of a, a reset and tennis can come out with a, a better structure and a more coherent uh, organization at less at cross purposes than, than it was before. That would take, uh, you know, a fairly radical overhaul in some ways, but there's time and there may be energy behind it to, to try to get something done on that front. I don't know. I don't know if you sense any of that right now. I do. Yeah. I do. And, you know, it's one of the things that over the course of my career and my life is that the best way to, to, to sort of make something happen is just to start, you know, it's a yeah. lot of great things that end up being great didn't start with a huge ambition. They just start. And so, you know, just starting to collaborate and work together and realizing the benefits of collaboration coordination, which as you said, within the tennis world, I think has been fantastic. You know, the hope is that then that just gets the ball rolling and it just grows from there. And, um, and I really do think that, and then, and then, you know, not to sound Pollyannish, but I'm hopeful that that's the takeaway more broadly here that, like we have a bunch of problems like climate change and things that are real issues that you can't solve within one country or within one political party, but the whole world needs to come together and solve them. And, you know, when you see a picture of what L.A. looks like now with no cars, you realize what can be. Mm. And hopefully that we can all emerge from this, realizing that working together and collaborating can help us solve not just this, which is the first and most urgent problem of coronavirus, but then hopefully... Hopefully we can retain it and something good will come of it that we can work together and solve the bigger problems that we all face. I'm not exactly sure what the tennis equivalent of smog is, but I'm sure it's there in some way. And, and yeah, if that, if that <laughs> clears out through all this, it will be a, a silver lining and clearer skies ahead for sure. Yeah, uh, for sure. For sure. No, it's been wonderful. And people have been great. People have been really generous with their time and ideas and assistance. And, and you know, the eyes of the tennis world are going to be on America next and so hopefully there's a way that we can give people something to look forward to and something to enjoy over the summer i think people really want they want to change they don't want what they're going through right now um and they want to get out there but they want to do it safely and we only want to do it safely but hopefully hopefully together with that spirit of collaboration we can problem solve and 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 make that happen that's a very nice note to end on but i will say if anything else you want to add before i uh let you go mark uh, thank you for your uh, time here. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I think that's been great. It's always a pleasure to chat and um, we'll have a lot more to talk about over the weeks and months ahead. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. So thank you very much once more to Mark Ein for coming on the show. And thank you guys for listening. And thank you especially to our Patreon backers who help keep us going during these weird times in our lives when tennis work as it normally is has stopped indefinitely. want to especially thank our Slam Champ level backers, Liz Kinnell, Jonathan Weinbaum, 
Betty, Chuang Nguyen, and Mary Carrillo. Also our goat backer, J-O-D. If you want to join them and backing us on Patreon, we'd really appreciate it. Our Patreon page can be found at patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. And you can pledge your monthly support there. Just as I said, we very much appreciate it in these times. You can also just follow us along on Twitter for free at NCR underscore tennis. And also one more thing on Patreon, we will be doing more Patreon only content sporadically during this time as well, Courtney and I, especially when we have non-tennis things to talk about. And there's a lot going on in the world right now that is not tennis as tennis stops. So those are all the things there. Send us emails, questions, comments to no challenges remaining at gmail.com. And we'd appreciate that as well. And we will see you guys sometime soon. Bye. <laughs>